And Pastor Paul will be preaching this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first 12 verses. This is God speaking to his family, to his church. These are the elders. These are the deacons. He calls and sets apart. Chapter 3, verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that means elder, he desires a noble task. Now, the elder overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a, a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons in the same way. Their wives are to be women worthy of respect. Not malicious talkers, but temperate. Trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband, but of one wife, and manage his children and his household well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the Bible, the way we're to live before you, the truth we're to know about you, now, Father, we ask for the anointing and unction and ministry of the Holy Spirit. As Pastor Paul opens up the word to us, please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that will embrace these truths. For the honor of Christ, Father, for the purity of his church here and throughout your nations. Father, we've never, ever needed you more than we do today. And thank you that your grace has never, ever been more sufficient than today because we come 
in the name, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, our Lord, our Head. Amen. Maybe some of you, like me, <clears throat> have a memory from your childhood, from your young childhood, of being afraid of being lost in public. I have memories as a little child. Now, I grew up in the country. You need to know that. I was from a rural part of South Carolina. And if we had a big trip into town, that meant we went into Columbia, South Carolina, and a big trip into town would be maybe a trip to the mall, maybe a trip to a football game. They play a little bit of football in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, I have memories of going to the state fair in Columbia, South Carolina. But always, in all of those settings, inside of my little boyhood heart, was a fear of being lost in the crowd of all these people. And I remember it being cemented in my mind, and I don't know if this was what somebody told me or if this was just instinct, but it was, if you get lost, look for a kind-looking grandparent. That was my instinct. And in that instinct was, look for an old man with a beard. Now, I don't know why an old man with a beard, none of, my, none of the men, none of the Patrick men had beards, but it was just, maybe it was Santa Claus was ingrained in my mind that that's the kindest of grandparents that you could ever look for if you're in a predicament. Now, if quarantine has given us in our culture anything, it has been beards, a lot of bad beards, if I could say that. This morning, the beard is strangely a part of the sermon. Because the beard in Hebrew was synonymous with the elderly man, the old man of wisdom. It's the same Hebrew root word. You can check me on this. And so to have a beard was, in a person's mind, synonymous with having wisdom having something to offer those who are younger. And you've heard it said this morning that August is nominations month for Greenwood Presbyterian Church. And as if it had been planned this way, our series on the church is going to conclude with a few weeks, one of those being election of officers. What is an officer? What is an elder? What is a deacon? Why are they men? All of these things which are important to us as a church that's seeking to be faithful to Scripture. You've heard the passage read uh, by Archie this morning. And I would say to you as we begin this subject of elders and deacons, that the Scriptures say that we're like sheep, every one of us. We are like sheep. God's people have always been referred to as sheep. And it has always been said of us that we need shepherds. We need an ultimate shepherd, but we need shepherds along the way, shepherds to rule, to guide in wisdom and in truth. And what we need, God has provided for us. 
And in Scripture, we're told this morning where to look, how to look, what to look for in that wisdom in our elders and our deacons, our prospective elders and deacons. And so you've heard the text read this morning. Let me pray, and then we're going to seek to understand it and to apply it. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us open ears and open hearts as we now consider your word, that description of what a godly man, an elder and a deacon, a servant of the Lord, what they would look like, what kind of person we should look to nominate, and ultimately what kind of people all of us should seek to become. And we ask this and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have four points for you this morning. And the first is that God's people, the church, have a history of leadership by elders. This concept of being led by elders and looking to the, to the elders for wisdom, it's throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. We see it in Genesis. We see it in Exodus. We see that elders were assembled to lead Israel, to lead Moses. In Exodus 24, we see a team of 70 elders that were assembled to lead Israel. In Proverbs 31, that familiar passage about the godly woman, it says there that her husband is respected at the city gate and that he takes his seat among the elders of the land. And so this concept of elders leading, elders ruling, elders being a God-given source of wisdom, it's been this way since the very beginning. And you and I should look for a people who are characterized by what Paul says here in 1 Timothy 3 are the descriptions of faith and character. Paul says in the New Testament that if any man aspires to be an overseer, to be an elder, then he desires a noble task. And so I want to begin right there in verse 1. Aspiration. Some people will aspire to the noble task of serving the Lord and His church as an elder. But I want to draw a line of distinction between aspiration and ambition. I think those are two very different things. And I've known personally a lot of people who are ambitious for power, for control, maybe for eldership, maybe for pastorship. But this is aspiration. What Paul describes here is to be a godly aspiration not a selfish ambition. And so as you search your own heart, men, as to whether or not you would be willing to be nominated to serve, that's one thing to consider. Is it an aspiration of your heart? Would you aspire to serve the Lord in this way? Or is it an ambition of your heart? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get in control. Now it's time for me to put my two cents in and, and be heard. Right? It's a very different position between personal aspiration and, and, and ambition, uh, vain, empty, personal ambition. 
So consider your heart, seek your heart. And remember that Paul says this is a noble task. This is a good thing. This is of God, and it is for His church. It's for the good of His church. So that's where we begin, verse 1. Now, in verse 2, we are given how church officers are to meet an objective standard, a standard of qualification. And I'm going to work our way through each of these with brief comment Uh, Because we need to. This is what we've been given is the kind of faith and the kind of character that the church is literally dying for. So what is that faith? What is that character of those who would aspire to be elders? What does it look like? First, it says they should be above reproach. Above reproach. That does not mean that they are perfect men. It does not mean that they are perfect men. It means that there is a consistency in their life. There is no obvious category of their life in which they're living a reckless, haphazard life. They're above reproach. They are walking the walk. They are seeking to be sincere and true. Secondly, of the 14 traits, it says that he is faithful to his wife. Literally, that means he is a one-woman man. Jokingly, we would say there are no side chicks in his life. He does not have an eye that is easily diverted from the one that he's been given. He is serious about his marriage. He's committed to his bride. He's faithful to his wife. Third, it says that he's a temperate man. Now, we don't use that language very much, at least I don't, but to be temperate, in a sense, is to be moderate. Now, that sounds like a red flag in our culture, but to be moderate means to not be given to extremes. That he's a man, he's a sober-minded man, he's a sober-thinking man who's not given to radical extremes. He's temperate in that way. Fourthly, It says this man is self-controlled. He's a self-disciplined man. Or we might say that he's a word-disciplined man. The word of God in his life, there's a discipline between them. They come together. There's a consistency in this kind of man. Fifthly, he's a respectable man. People think well of him. He's a respectable guy. He's one of the good ones. He's a solid, good man. He has a good reputation. He is well respected by those who know him. Sixthly, it says that he's hospitable. He's the kind of man who would give you the shirt off of his back if you needed it. He's hospitable in that he's the kind of guy who asks in his own mind, who has needs around me and what can I do to help him, to help them, to help that family? He's just got a radar, a hospitality radar that's looking and wondering, how can I help people? Sinclair Ferguson on this characteristic says, To be hospitable does not not mean that you have a big house. It means you have a big heart. 
And I think that's precisely right. There's something about the elder. He's hospitable in what he does. He's cheerful and happy to care and tend to the needs and the interests of others. Seventhly, he's able to teach. And what that likely means is that he can distinguish between truth and falsehood. He has a deep understanding, a knowledge and an awareness of what the gospel truly is and what falls short of truly being the gospel. In that way, he's able to teach. It does not mean that every elder is a profound teacher who's fantastic on his feet teaching in front of a lot of people. It means he can distinguish between truth and falsehood. Number eight, it says he's not given to drunkenness. He can drink, but he can't overdrink. Number nine, he's not violent, but he's gentle. Now this is where it's going to come in. Several of these characteristics are positive, but are given in the negative. So he's not violent, but he is gentle. He's known not as a guy who blows off and gets angry. He's not a guy who gets angry and, and, and puts his fist through drywall at home or at work. There's something gentle about him. There's something restrained about him. It's a godly gentleness when the world might be violent and angry and ugly. He's the kind of guy who will take a deep breath and consider the consequences before he does or says something. Right? He's gentle, not violent. Number 10, he's not quarrelsome. He's not looking for a fight. He's not wanting a fight. He's not enjoying a fight, even on Facebook and social media. He's not looking to go toe-to-toe with somebody. He doesn't have a quarrelsome spirit. He has a peaceful spirit. Now, is he willing to fight over things that matter? I think we'll learn later that, yes, he is. There are some things that are worth fighting for, but he doesn't have a quarrelsome spirit. Number 11, he's not a lover of money. He's willing to give it away. He has a loose grasp on money but he has a giving spirit. He's not controlled by a love of money or of dishonest gain. Number 12, it says he must manage his house well. That may just simply mean that his children obey him. They're not in open rebellion. The family is not in chaos. His home is managed well. He is seeking to lead his family faithfully. And those who live in his home, as a part of his household, they're not in wild rebellion against dad. Number 13, he's not a recent convert. He needs time for his roots to have grown deep. Otherwise, he's in shallow soil and would not be tested and proved for leadership until those roots have grown more deeply. And then number 14, he has a good reputation among outsiders. 
That is to say, the people at work think much of him. The people at the gym think much of him. The people at the grocery store speak well of him. He has a good reputation among those who see him in a different context than the immediate one within the church family. He has a good reputation among those kinds of people. That's 14 characteristics that the Apostle Paul gives us about the character and the faith of what an elder should be. And so as we consider the persons that we will nominate for office, that's the description. That's what we're looking for. Not a perfect man, but somebody who's above reproach. Somebody who's sincere and seeking to be faithful across the board in who they are in all categories of life. Then the Apostle Paul immediately talks about deacons. He gives us 14 characteristics about elders. Now he gives us seven characteristics about deacons. And that word deacon simply means servant. You might remember from Acts chapter 6, as we began going through Acts, we saw the proto-deacons, the first deacons that were elected to office. And now the Apostle Paul comes back and reveals the, the character of those men, which you'll find is completely consistent with the faith and the character of elders. Here are the seven things he says our deacons should be characterized by. Deacons should be worthy of respect. That means they should be sincere. They should be the real deal. They truly are worthy of respect. They are respectable men. They're sincere. Literally, they're not double-tongued meaning they don't talk out of both sides of their mouth. When I'm with my church crowd, I talk this way. When I'm with another crowd, I talk this way. When I'm with the church crowd, I live this way. When I'm with another crowd, I live another way. Not true of a deacon worthy of the office. He is a consistent man, a sincere man, not a double-tongued man. Thirdly, he too is not a drunkard. He can drink, but he can't over-drink. Number four, he does not pursue dishonest gain, just as the elder, what was true of the elder. He's not a man of greed. He's not a man who's always looking to make a buck out of any and every situation. He's not looking for dishonest gain. He's a true man. He's a kind man. He's an honest man man, even in the workplace when it comes to money. And fifthly, it says that he too holds the deep truths of the faith, the mystery of God, the mystery of Christ. He holds to that. When the world might scoff at it, he's not going to loosely let go of what the church believes. He's going to hold to it as a faithful deacon. And then sixthly, it says that he too is faithful to his wife. He is a one-woman man. The same thing said of the elder. His marriage is a priority and he is committed to being a faithful man of God in his marriage. And then seventhly, it also says of him that he manages his household well. Things are in order His children are not in open rebellion. 
they obey Him as He seeks to lead them in the Lord. Now those are the comments made about our church officers, elders and deacons. But if you paid attention to the reading, there's a third category. And it's a reference to women. The version that Archie read said, the wives of deacons. Now this is a source of controversy. You will find different churches that hold to different positions, different understandings of this. But for us in the Presbyterian Church in America, the bottom line is this. We believe that the men are called to be the office bearers. But we know from our own experience, and we know from the examples in Scripture, that the women of those men and that the women of the church are called to be faithful servants of Christ Jesus. And when a faithful man is present serving, you don't have to look far to find his faithful wife serving alongside him in some capacity, practicing hospitality, serving the church with her gifts, but they're not office bearers. They are faithful servants. And Paul gives a description that those women, those women who step forward to serve in this way, they too should have a consistent character. Just like those men who bear the office, these women who serve, he says in verse 11, they should be worthy of respect. They should not be malicious talkers. Now Paul never says that about the men. In Paul's experience, it may be that some of the women were quick to snipe at each other. They were malicious talkers saying hurtful things, difficult things. And Paul brings that out. He highlights that, maybe addressing a specific need or maybe addressing something that is typical to all of us. He then says that they too should be temperate. They should not be people of extremes in anything. They are sober-minded, sober-thinking people. And then he says of the godly women who serve Christ Jesus in his church, they are to be trustworthy in everything. So here's the big picture this morning. It seems very clear that the Apostle Paul has a, a character and a faith that those who are in office should represent faithfully in the world. We should be a consistent people of character that runs constantly through all parts of our lives, all categories of our lives. We're supposed to be consistent people. Elders are supposed to be that way. The deacons are supposed to be that way. The women who serve are supposed to be that way. But the truth is, all of us, whether in office or not, are supposed to be this way. Sinclair Ferguson says that very thing. He says, this is to be the faith and character of all of us, not some of us. But it must especially be true of our officers. And I think that's precisely right. So if in going through that all that character and faith, those characteristics, if any part of you is like, oh, okay, well, that's the officers. I'm glad that doesn't have to be true of me. Well, think of how absurd that would be. Does that really mean that the rest of us as Christians, that we can be malicious talkers, that we can be selfish, that we cannot be sincere, that we can be sloppy in all the categories of life? Of course not. This really is a picture of who all of us should be 
in Christ Jesus, but especially our office bearers. As the office bearers go, so the rest of the church will go. I remember hearing in seminary, as the pulpit goes, so the people will go. Meaning whatever is modeled and preached and said in the pulpit is going to find its way into the pew. And so the same thing is true with our officers. As our officers go, so our people will go. And the Apostle Paul says, have a high bar for those men who will serve in the church. Expect faith, expect character, demand that those things be present in their life. But at the same time, know that it should be true of all of us. Every single one of us, young and old, should be growing in faith and character that looks like this. Now, isn't it interesting, if you've been paying attention, that on this description of what it is to be a church officer, there has been no job description given whatsoever. Nothing has been said about what they are supposed to do. Everything has said who they are supposed to be. And there's a big difference in the Christian life between doing and being. We can form checklists and we can do all kinds of things, but that's not the same as being those things. And Paul here does not give us a description of here are ten things that elders should go do. He says here are the characteristics of faith and of their personal character that they should be in the world. So apparently the conclusion is this. Look for the right kind of man and he will do the right kind of thing. No need to tell him what to do. That's going to come out of him. If he has a godly character in Christ Jesus, he's going to be the church. He's going to do the right kinds of things because God is at work in him and through him. Amen? Amen. All right, thirdly, of four points, number three. Remember, these men are not perfect. And leaders lead imperfectly, just as followers follow imperfectly. Now, if we can um, be completely honest here for just a moment, if COVID taught us anything about beards on the faces of men, that's one thing that quarantine taught us. Another thing COVID maybe has taught us is that leaders are not perfect and followers aren't either. It's hard to lead through hard times. And it's hard to follow through hard times. Isn't that true? It's not that one has the hard job and the other has the easy job. Both leading and following are hard things for us to do. Now, why is that? Well, let's think theologically for just a moment. Well, it's hard because of that old man that lives inside of every one of us that sin nature that every one of us has that we're seeking to put to death. And that old man can make us pretty impatient with people. It can make us impatient with ourselves. And that old man that lives inside of every one of us 
Well, he tends to make me feel like a know-it-all. Does he do that in your life? And the old man in me can produce a hot shot who thinks he knows it all. Well, this is what ought to be done. And that makes it hard to both lead and to follow. And that old man that's inside of us, well, he can make us pretty frustrated with each other. And he can rob the peace that we, every one of us, should have in Christ, which says, you know what, in the midst of this circumstance, God is at work fulfilling his promises, and even I can't screw that up. Have you ever comforted yourself in the midst of chaos with that? You know, God's made promises. He's at work. He's accomplishing His purposes. And even I can't screw that up. God's will be done. And God's will will be done. But it's that old man inside of every one of us that makes it hard to lead. It makes it hard to follow. And that's true in the church, and that's true in marriages too. And you know that. You could come up and tell your own stories. Husbands and fathers could come tell a lot of stories about how hard it is to lead, to lead well, to lead consistently, to lead constantly, to lead faithfully. But wives and children could come up here, and they have just as many stories to tell about how hard it is to follow. Right? And so it's a dance. It's a dance in marriage of struggling to lead and struggling to follow. And it's a dance in church of struggling to lead and struggling to follow. But it's the dance that God has called us to live. It's a dance worth dancing. But God gives us guidelines. He gives us boundaries. He tells us this is the way you should go. And he says, make sure the one leading your dance dances with faith and character like these 14 characteristics of an elder, these seven characteristics of a deacon. He gives us four characteristics of the women of the church. And so leaders lead imperfectly. Followers follow imperfectly. But I'll close the sermon with this. And that is our great hope. That the one leader that we truly need is the one leader we truly have. And it ain't me. It's the Lord Jesus Himself who gives us His Word and His Spirit. The two things in our study of Acts that we saw come up constantly is that Jesus was reigning from heaven, ministering to the earth by His Word and His Spirit through men who were incapable, but that he called and empowered to have effect. And so the Lord Jesus is king of his church. He's the elder of his church. He's the elder brother and the true elder brother of his church. And he's our hope. And this morning we come to the Lord's table. This is a communion Sunday, as well as a Sunday to begin elections, nominations of church officers. But as we come to the table this morning, I like to always give us some focal point to consider. And I think this morning it would be appropriate as we reflect on the, the very difficult year behind us that has impacted the entire world. As we've been led and as we've sought to follow, knowing that leaders are imperfect, 
knowing that followers are imperfect, there is one true leader of Christ's church who is worthy of respect, who is above reproach, and that's the Lord Jesus. And this morning He offers Himself to us that we might remember Him, that we might partake of Him, that we might remember that this is His work of His church that we all participate in together. And all the grace that we need is all the grace that we have. Let's pray and we'll sing and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. Not just that you give us a list of characteristics in Scripture, but as your word says in Ephesians 4, that it's Christ Himself who gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Lord, You gave us more than a list of characteristics. You said You've given us Yourself and You've given us Your people. You've given us Your Word and Your Spirit. Now, Lord, would you give us wisdom to make good use of those in the life of Greenwood Presbyterian Church. Lord, govern us through this month-long process. Give us wisdom. Give us the men, the leaders, the elders, the deacons, the, the exact ones that our church needs. And we ask this and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.